0: We Will Fix You, where three white men are talking near a MacBook. So statistically, this is either a podcast or a job interview at Google, and I guess you'll find out. Joining me to uh, fix your problems and or grade you on a frankly demeaning whiteboard coding exercise, you will uh, have Dave Convery, who is squirrels. Just a lot of squirrels coming for you with single-minded fury you honestly wouldn't expect. Hello. Mr. H.J. Doom, who is sexually attracted to Birmingham.
1: Hello. And
0: I am Roger Hart, the guy who paints the silver lining onto the clouds. And I'm here to tell you that shit ain't real silver, and I don't get overtime, Neither. If um, if you would like to ask us a question, you can write to us at wewillfixyoushow at gmail.com, or on our website, hauntedphonograph.com. There's a little submission form on the side. It's, like, properly anonymous and shit, so you don't have to humiliate yourself by owning up to your existential angst, genital warts, or whatever the hell rancid shite is going on in your horrible life today. We still want to hear about it, though, and so do our lovely, lovely listeners. Now, today, a question. Dear We Will Fix You, I've got myself into a daft situation at work. I have acquired a nemesis. Not only that, but a substandard one. It's your classic case of overlapping responsibilities and unclear boundaries, so we both feel we're on each other's patch. They're not malicious, and it's the company's fault, not theirs. But that's the problem. The situation says nemesis. Every office politics bone in my body says I must destroy them. But they're kind of nice, albeit boring, and generally competent, although maybe a bit inept at some of the stuff they're trying to do, and I could probably do some of it better what do i even do with this we will fix you i have a crap nemesis the conflict is there but it isn't even interesting what do i do well mr Connery. well like you say you've got a nemesis
2: and unless something goes horribly wrong that's not going to go away so i'm going to suggest that you just make the most of it let's find out what a nemesis can really do for you um Thankfully, you are not the first person to have a work nemesis. You're definitely not the first to feel like you woefully outclass your competition. The past is a treasure trove of rivalries to inspire you, to teach you, maybe even make you smile. So come with me on a journey through the shithouse, dickhead workplace feuds of history. Let's learn something, find out what to avoid, and maybe figure out how to enjoy and even draw strength from your petty office machinations. It's feudin' time.
0: Oh, I'm here for this.
2: Let's start with a big one, Edison versus Tesla. So you've said your work overlaps with that of your nemesis, but I bet you never thought to fuck up an entire elephant to prove that your way is better than theirs. But that's what that's what Edison did to prove that Tesla's alternating current was much less safe than his own direct current he stood a circus elephant that he'd bought on an electrified metal plate. That his own electricity would have fucked up the elephant just as hard, being as it was electricity, was neither here nor there. Edison had dropped the Victorian equivalent of a carefully massaged PowerPoint presentation, and Tesla never recovered. One you may not have heard of. Adolf and Rudy Deisler. I, I hope I'm saying that correctly, Germans, but also I, I don't really care. Um, the founders of the Deisler Brothers shoe company didn't really get on, uh, and corporate success did not change that very much. Um, it, it, it didn't help that they shared lived in a shared villa with both of their wives, who, again, hated each other. They were essentially quite bad at decision-making. Coincidentally, they were also Nazis. Uh, they managed a slow burn bickering that sustained them and their business for years, until the phrase, the dirty bastards are back again, was muttered in haste, at uh, the Allied forces closing in on their town, but believed at that time by Rudy to be a crack at his family as they entered the communal bunker, though again, not good decision making. This drove the wedge in so deeply that it, it, it frankly couldn't be unwedged, and later... Rudy was sent to the front to fight the Allies, and uh, AD, of course immediately sold him out to the Allies, rebuilding the company in Rudy's absence uh, by selling shoes to GIs as the war wound down and Rudy languished as a prisoner of war. When he was released, the company split. AD formed Adidas and Rudy formed Puma in the same small German town on either side of the river. The entire town sides in this. There are reports of people checking what shoes the other person was wearing before talking to them. The the, the town was referred to as the bent-neck town from people doing this. And this is amazing because it forces you to picture an entire town of war-weary mid-century Germans as being as heavily invested in what fucking sneakers everyone is wearing as the average 14-year-old boy. When they died, Ade and Rudy were buried at opposite ends of the same cemetery. And both companies are still going strong today, showing that a truly great nemesis can lift both you and them to great heights, or you can at least be the third favorite trainer brand in Essex. Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. Sometimes a feud is just too long and messy to fully untangle, but these two were professional rivals, their feud lasted decades, and now it's impossible to think of one without immediately referring to the other. So it didn't do their careers much harm while other starlets of the early film era started fading away. Joan and Betty kept getting work, albeit generally as harridans. It can work for you too. Keep the resentment simmering and you can get your way in the wider business because frankly, no one is going to want your insane ire sloshing over the sides and onto them. Make hate your personal brand and profit. The entirety of the Beach Boys. Firstly, Never allow me to pass up the opportunity to point out that Mike Love is a suppurating puckered hole of a man. Like Betty and Joan, this one's really hard to unpick. It covers long years and tragedy, wildly differing viewpoints and desires, mental health issues, a long arc from novelty act to artistic maturity, and through it all, the only real constant is change. That and that Mike Love is a squamous ringpiece who ruins everything. Sometimes it's okay to just hate. Like love. Ernest and Julio Gallo versus Joseph Gallo. Fuck awful wine doers Ernest and Julio are incredibly litigious, because when you have that little respect for grapes, suing your younger brother to stop him using his own name for his cheese making business is small fry. They, in their infinite hubris, accused him of associating their name with a low quality product. An accusation that honestly beggars belief because good fucking Lord have you drunk that stuff. It's piss. The takeaway here is that you don't need to focus on what you're doing, just make sure that everyone knows what your nemesis is doing wrong. And finally, a a big one to take us out, Paul McCartney and John Lennon. These two, you know, created differences, bickering for years. Paul McCartney wrote a, a song for John Lennon's son, encouraging him not to be sad just because his dad was a fuckwit. It has to date sold around 8 million copies, and it's incredibly annoying. John Lennon recorded songs in return, saying that Paul McCartney wrote some terrible jangly toss. Both men made excellent points, I'm sure you'll agree. They sniped at each other for years, but eventually sort of reconciled. Later one would be murdered, uh, and the other would write the Frog Chorus. I'd leave it to you to decide who came off worse. Hopefully, I've shown you the important benefits you can glean from a properly conducted, formally organised and rigorously enforced feud. Now go forth and be the best elephant murderer you can be. We believe in you.
0: A nemesis, eh? Now, Nemesis was one of those ancient Greek goddesses who uh, shifted over time from meeting out the implacable effects of fortune to something a bit more revengey, as the culture itself shifted and as religion moved around. These things happen, you know, plates shift. The adversarial element you're talking about here was kind of a later addition, although there's always been a note of it. Now, in the proper Aristotelian view of the world, um, your office seen through the lens of Greek tragedy, if you like, um, you're getting what's coming to you for being flawed or finding yourself in a flawed position and handling the whole thing with pride. To be brutal, this is on brand. Your tone is a wee bit contemptuous and you're stuck between two competing value systems. Throw in a dead brother, your Antigone. Fucked your mum, Oedipus. Caught your wife shagging Lancelot, Mort Arthur. Like, you've got a tragic mire going on here is, is what I'm saying. And so I think the only choice is to go with the Aristotelian flow. Now, tragedy has, according to the poetics and some other Aristotelian Cup in six phases. Hamartia, Hubris, peripeteia, Anagnorisis, Nemesis, and Catharsis. It's a bit like The Hero's Journey, but with longer words. Also, I used The Hero's Journey in episode 61, and there's really only so far I can sweat one week of my literature degree. So we're gonna work back from your Nemesis, like appropriately size your Nemesis, and build a tragic narrative that fits so that we can get to the end. Now, the good news is that this is a healing journey. The bad news is that the benefit is mostly for the audience and the protagonist usually ends up dead. But hey, crap nemesis, crap tragedy, I figure you'll just lose a testicle. So let's go. First up, Hamartia the tragic flaw, quote-unquote, first page of Wikipedia, cliff notes, fuck's sake. This can be personal, like Othello's self-mythologising or Macbeth's ambition, or structural, like the competing honour codes facing Antigone, or the shitty service of the Verona Postal Service that dooms Romeo and Juliet. In your case, this could either be your stupid org chart forcing you to overlap, or the fact that you wrote to us. Hubris overweening pride, just in case the hamartia wasn't that, although it is often that. It's usually freighted with a disrespect for your order system. It doesn't really matter what the order system is or whether it's right or wrong. If you're headstrong at work or dismissive of the office politics, hello! On the off chance that you're not a preening dick, maybe get some licks in here, but gently. We're working back from a crap nemesis. The crime has to fit the punishment. Don't decry the corporate order or cry from the rooftops about organizational design, just kind of mention now and then that it's all a bit silly. This will then lead you into peripatea, an exciting reversal of fate, a kind of a moment of of reversal, often leaving the protagonist downtrodden. So this could be, uh, and and classically, narratively, it would be the first time you find out about that organizational overlap. Um, But just in case, just play it safe, you need to make sure that you have some kind of sudden change of circumstance. So maybe volunteer for a project that deep down you know is going to be shitty, or get yourself hauled in front of HR for your browser history. Crap nemesis again, so nothing too harsh. Keep it beige and missionary, no leather or goats. That'll take you through to the anagnorisis. The twist if you like, or a big moment of discovery. Uh, For extra points, and remember Aristotle thought it was all about didactic pity, about the audience coming to a kind of fear and awe. for, for these extra points, remember that anagnorisis comes before the kind of the fall—a fall that's made all the crunchier for knowing it was coming and couldn't be avoided. The whole—the whole point is the realization as you as you slip off the cliff. This, this is also the the absolute core of Camus' myth of Sisyphus, um, having to carry on with the tragic progression after your moment of awareness—a uh, grim, reflexive horror that just makes your suffering more piquant. It's rich with ironies and represents you seeing yourself clearly, but being unable to swerve in time to change, um, like, you know, you've watched The Good Place, right? And just, just, just having to watch it unfold, which you're doing now after you realised just enough to write to someone, but you wrote to us. You dick. Anyway, anagnorisis is pretty much in the bag. You're on the podcast. Just keep listening to the show. Hell, maybe even tell your friends. Like and subscribe is what I'm saying here. Aristotle poetics tell you to. Now, nemesis, boom, that coworker. The moment of unavoidable downfall or punishment, the low point of your story, the thing you exactly deserved that brings you slightly more misery than your hamartia warrants because it's all about fear and pity and inspiration of the audience. You're stuck in a shitty situation either forever or until something shifts. The most likely shift, the most common tragic shift, is some type of confrontation, but a mild one, again, because it's all rather wibbly and inexact, and your situation is, like, fucking mediocre on a good day. You could, oh, I don't know, face the fucking awkwardness of sitting the fuck down and fucking talking to them about how to deal with the situation like a pair of bloody adults would. That would be both a dramatic confrontation and pretty painful. Then catharsis the feeling of pity and fear felt by the audience, not just for your downfall, but inspired by the learning moments of the anagnorisis. It's, it's a healing moment. There's a sense of purification too, and it has to come from the drama. Now, you followed this through. You've been a bit of a dick, but not massively. You got told off by HR for spanking it to incredibly vanilla pornography, um, and it dented your career a little bit, but, you know, just a little. You realized you were a shit about it and then you wrote into a deeply unhelpful podcast where you kind of languished in a hapless self-awareness and you faced down your nemesis. So catharsis should be happening about now. Can you feel it? Maybe not. You should probably be very slightly miserable and or getting a little bit maimed. The audience though, they should be feeling Mid-level fear, traces of pity, possibly a little relief. All by learning from you being a bit rubbish at work and having to live with it. How about it, listeners? Has uh, has this been just enough of an educative downer to conclude your tragic cycle? I suppose you could write in. Anyway, I'm going to go with yes um, and pronounce our questioner thoroughly and cathartically fixed.
2: But just in case they're not.
0: But, um... On the off chance they're not, what say you, H.J. Doom?
1: It's very obvious to me what's going on here is quite simple. You've become embroiled in the early stages of an odd-couple comedy film. You're a pair of chalk-and-cheese oddballs in a dull workplace setting that will provide the backdrop to either a bromance, a womance or a fully-fledged romance filled with comedic set pieces that will initially throw your differences into sharp relief, but gradually uncover similarities between you They go deeper than surface emotions such as all-consuming loathing or blind contempt. Eventually, by the mysterious power of narrative causality, you will get married and descend into the contented miasma of domesticity that is the endgame of all such stories. That will be your lot until about five years have passed when you'll star in the follow-up story which will Riff on your contrasting parental styles by adding a couple of adorable children to the mix, each of which will take after a different parent. I'm sorry if you don't want to fuck your nemesis and raise a pair of sassy moppets who'll get all the best lines in a sequel, but I don't make the rules, I merely enforce them. Having established that you have absolutely no choice in the matter, the only advice I can really offer relates to getting this whole odd couple romantic comedy phase of your life over as quickly and comparatively painlessly as possible. We're all busy people after all, and a period of anarchic fun filled with repartee, mistaken identities, slapstick and the odd brush with the law while disguised as your own aunt is the sort of thing that can be explained away easily enough in your twenties, but it starts to look like a drag on your CV once you've hit 35 or so and being dead inside becomes a necessary precondition for higher level roles in most organisations. If taking time out of your career to have or raise children is detrimental, then taking time out from your career to go on a hair-raising adventure that finishes with an improvised wedding on the deck of a fishing trawler is even worse. Capitalism has a tricky relationship with whimsy, especially when there's no money to be made from it, so it's as well to get this nonsense out of your system as quickly as possible. So what we're going to try and do is get you through all three acts of your romance as fast as we can so that both you and your nemesis can go back to staring at computer screens, having meetings, answering emails, and all the other soulless pursuits mandated by your station and mine in this hellish enterprise we call society. So you're currently in act one. And the key thing here is to establish that you're very different people with adorable or maddening quirks. You're a neat freak. They frequently soil themselves in public and so forth. In order to get the most out of this contrast, you're gonna to have to be in close proximity. So it's vital that you get yourself put on the same project so everyone else can really see just how badly you mesh together. Gosh, your coworkers will be thinking, these people are very different. One's a stickler for the rules and the other recently set fire to a building. Surely putting them on the same team can only end badly. And in a way they're sort of right, in another way they're also going to learn a little lesson about life and isn't that nice. So once you've done that we need to take you both out of your element and raise the stakes. Now your manager will doubtless have noticed a certain friction between you and therefore it ought to be simplicity itself to anonymously suggest a team building exercise as the natural way to heal the divisions within the team. It's vitally important that this team building exercise Should take place somewhere rife with comedic potential. So a conference centre outside Swindon is bad. Anywhere inside the Arctic Circle is good, especially if you can go somewhere where you don't speak the language. Once you arrive in your exotic location, simply burn everyone's passports, destroy any survival gear within a five-mile radius of the campsite, and get ready to learn an important lesson about life while getting into simply hilarious scrapes with a hungry polar bear. Through this madcap and only occasionally harrowing romp, you'll learn how your differences actually make you stronger as a team. Feelings of hate will, by the alchemy of shared adversity, turn into warmer feelings. One night, as you're burrowing into a decaying orca carcass for warmth, you'll realise that you've never felt so close to another human being or so hungry, and you'll kiss tenderly between dry heaves brought on by the smell of rotting blubber. Congratulations, You've entered act three, you've successfully navigated the plot for an odd couple romance, and you've found happiness in the most unlikely of places, running for your life from a crew of heavily armed seal poachers. Problem solved. Um, There is a small caveat which I'm required to include by law. Now, this process won't work if you both work in marketing for the simple reason Science has demonstrated that it's physically impossible to make one marketer appealing in a narrative context, never mind two, unless the narrative art consists entirely of them giving up on marketing and going to raise abandoned donkeys in the countryside. So if you both work in marketing, then I'm afraid it's not act one of a romantic comedy. It's act one of a cautionary tale about working in marketing which ends with one of you having a heart attack and the other opening a small bistro in a fashionable bit of London. And I'd get working on your homemade pasta recipes now if I were you, because if you don't, it'll be you that gets the heart attack. And we don't want that.
0: Well, that's been educational and upsetting on more vectors than I can realistically model in my very tired brain. If you, dear listeners, are also tired, confused, anguished, we present a long distance, deeply helpful digital shoulder upon which to cry. And uh, you can reach us at wewillfixyoushow at gmail.com or at hauntedphonograph.com, where there's a helpfully anonymous little question box. I mean, we will still judge you, we just won't know who you are. We're doing it now. I strained my judging
1: muscle.